We're continuing on in the book of Acts, and this morning we'll look at Acts 21, verses 27 through 36. Paul has finally arrived in Jerusalem, and if you were here last week, you saw that things got off to a pretty good start. He related how God had been working among the Gentiles, and they all praised God and glorified God. Uh, but then James mentioned that uh, some of the Jews there heard that he speaks against the law, and he tried to accommodate them by taking a Nazarite vow. And we pick up the story in verse 27. When the seven days, that is of the Nazarite vow, were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing Paul in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohorts that in all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested Paul and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, may we not merely listen to Your Word and so deceive ourselves, but may we do what it says and be like the wise man who built his house upon the rock. The rains fell, the floods came, and the winds blew against the house, but it did not fall because it was founded upon the rock. Lord, we ask that such a house will exemplify our lives because we listen to Your Word and we apply it and we obey it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I think the following story is true. Um, I hope it's true because I, I love it. Uh, but even if it's not true, um, I'll still make my point. Uh, the story is told that when Lou Little was football coach at Georgetown University, he had on his squad a player of average ability who rarely got into the game. But Coach Little was fond of him. He especially liked the way that this player would walk arm in arm with his father on the campus. One day, shortly before a game with Fordham, uh, the mother's, or excuse me, the boy's mother called with the news that his father had died of a heart attack that morning. The student went home with a heavy heart, but he was back three days later, and he pleaded with the coach. Coach, start me in the game against Fordham. 
I think that is what my father would have liked the most. After a moment's hesitation, Coach Little said, okay, but only for a play or two. True to his word, he put the boy in, but he never took him out. For 60 action-packed minutes, the inspired young man blocked like an All-American. After the game was over, the coach praised him. He said, son, you have never played like that before in your life. What got into you? Remember how my father and I used to walk arm in arm, answered the boy? Well, he was totally blind. And today, he saw me play for the first time. I mentioned this before, but the late atheist Christopher Hitchens uh, despised at least two concepts about God. He despised the fact that Jesus would die on the cross for his sins. Um, He mocked the idea that someone had to atone for his sins. And he also hated the thought that God was an ever-present God, always looking over his shoulder, watching every move that he made. To him, it sounded like God was some kind of cosmic voyeur. For the Christian, on the other hand, the omnipresence of God, the doctrine that God is everywhere and that God sees everything, is crucial to the Christian life. Matthew 6, you can turn there. In Matthew 6, Jesus said, beginning at verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, do not sound the trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. It's important to believe in the omnipresence of God, because then God is looking over your shoulder, and He sees not only the things you're doing that are wrong, but He also sees your righteous deeds. And even if no one else sees them, God sees them. And sometimes you only want God to see them. In fact, you don't want to take notice of them. That's what meant by that phrase here. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. It's almost like don't even pay attention to what you're doing. Just let God know what you're doing. And God who sees will reward you. And then Jesus talks about prayer. And He says the same thing. Don't pray before others to be seen by them. Then you'll receive your reward. Boy, isn't He spiritual? Look at how He prays. No, go into your closet, shut the door so no one can see you, no one can hear you, knowing that your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And then after the Lord's Prayer, in verses 16 to 18, Jesus talks about fasting. And He says, don't let anybody know you're fasting. Except God, your Father, who sees in secret, once again, will reward you. One of the reasons why the Apostle Paul demonstrated such conviction and courage in the midst of the most grueling and violent circumstances is because he lived his whole life Coram Deo. He lived his whole life before the faith of God. 
And he knew that even if no one else saw what he was doing, God saw. God saw how he was remaining steadfast and proclaiming the gospel. God saw that he was being beat up. God saw that he was being falsely accused. So he could persevere because God was looking over his soldiers. And God was pleased. One of the keys to the Christian life is being aware of the presence of God as we go throughout our day. I'll never forget one of my professors in college saying, live with such an awareness of God's presence that when you forget God is present with you, you miss Him. So in other words, make it your your goal, your ambition to go throughout your day with a conscious awareness that you are living moment by moment in the presence of God. And if you and I could do that, wouldn't it make a difference in how we lived? If we knew every step of the day, God is here. God is watching. God sees. And in God's time, He will reward. I believe that's one of the keys to Paul's great endurance. It's why he could face false accusations and physical assaults and and forceful arrests. Because he was living in the presence of God. I'd like us to consider three lessons from this passage this morning that we see from Paul. And I want to apply them to ourselves. Number one is, Christians will be wrongly accused. Let me say that again. Christians will be wrongly accused. Last week we saw that when Paul arrived in Jerusalem, he talked about how God worked among the Gentiles and they praised God. And then James said, uh, there is a rumor going around Jerusalem. And the rumor is that you teach the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to walk according to our customs. And then James said, what's to be done? They're going to hear that you have come. And then what James proposed was that Paul undergo a Nazarite vow and join other men who have taken a Nazarite vow and pay their expenses. That way, his very behavior would say he's not opposed to the law. Look, he even voluntarily takes a Nazarite vow. He shaves his head and he abstains from alcohol and from some other things. He's more than happy to live according to the customs of the Jews. And then his behavior would demonstrate, no, these are false rumors. They're not true. Now, what's interesting, verse 27 says, when the seven days were almost completed, the seven days of the vow, the vow's not even over yet. Paul's trying to put an end to these rumors. Before the vow was even over, Jews from Assyria seeing him in the temple, stirred up the crowds and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Nothing could have been further from the truth. He wasn't teaching against the Jews. He wasn't teaching against the law. He wasn't teaching against the temple. And they're going to accuse him of 
defiling the temple. And the irony here is that he's undergoing this vow, a strict vow, to make sure that he doesn't defile the temple and show everyone that he's very concerned about not defiling the temple. But they don't even pay attention to that. They dismiss that. And they just spread more rumors. <laughs> this is and, and the rumor spreads all over. Moreover, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled the holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, and he was a Gentile. They had seen Trophimus with him in the city and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Now here's what's happening. Um, you have the outer court. It's called the courts of the Gentiles. And the Gentiles could only go so far. They could only go into the outer court, the court of the Gentiles. And then there was a wall. And, and most commentators say that it was about four and a half feet tall. And after that, only Jews were allowed to go closer into the temple. Now, you need to know that right at that wall, which Paul calls the dividing wall of hostility because it separated Jews and Gentiles, you need to know that there was inscriptions all over. And the inscription said, if any Gentile goes beyond this point, his life is in his own hands. And that is well attested to. Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, said that there was an inscription which forbade any foreigner to go in any further under pain of death. And in recent years, in 1871 and then a little later in 1935, uh, more of these notices were discovered. And putting these notices together, this is what the text said. No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the temple and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. And the emperor, Titus, in the first century, gave the Jews permission to kill anybody that went beyond that wall, even if that person was a Roman. And that was a big deal because Romans had special rights. And we're going to see Paul appealing to the fact that he's a Roman citizen, so he's not to be beaten. But the Romans gave the Jews permission to kill even a Roman citizen if they dared cross that line because they knew how important it was to the Jews not to have the temple defiled. Now, that background is important because what do they think Paul has done? They think Paul has brought with him an un circumcised Gentile crossed that barrier into the temple and defiled it. How dare anybody do that? Now, Paul didn't do that. But they thought that, that Paul did that. And you'll notice that they weren't worried about gathering the facts. <laughs> they assumed Paul did this. And they didn't follow up to, hey, are we safe in this assumption or are we wrong? You know what? They didn't care. They were looking for a reason to kill Paul. And notice what the text says. Verse 30, Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul, 
dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. Verse 31, And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohorts that all Jerusalem was in confusion. But notice very carefully what verse 30 says. They were trying to kill him. That's literal. And they thought they had a reason to do so. A legal reason, a legitimate reason that would not get them in trouble with the Romans. And they were seeking to kill him, which means they were in the act of killing the Apostle Paul. A little later it says they were beating him. So I don't know if they got out sticks. I don't know if they were punching him. But we know all the city came out. There's this crazy mob and they are seeking to kill the Apostle Paul. All because of false rumors. None of it was true. But they didn't care if it was true. And you know what? At this point, they can't stop it. Word has just spread everywhere. The whole city is in an uproar. There is nothing that anybody could do. And I talked about this last week, but let me talk about it again because it's so important. It's so careful, or excuse me, it's so important to be careful about what we spread. Because once the rumor spread, you can't take it back. There's a story about a woman who spread a rumor about a pastor and it turned out it wasn't true and, and, and she felt terrible and she came to the pastor and she said, Pastor, what, what can I do to make up for, for what I've done gossiping about something that wasn't true? And he said, well, we'll tell you, well, come over to my house and, and bring a big bag of feathers. She's like, bring a big bag of feathers. He said, yeah, bring a big bag of feathers. So she did it because she wanted to make up for what she had done and uh, she came to the pastor's house and went out over balcony that was two stories up. It was a windy day. He said, now open up the bag of feathers and just throw it out. And she, and she threw out the feathers, hundreds of feathers, and they, and they blew all over the place. And he said, now I want you to go, I want you to collect all those feathers. Make sure you collect each and every one. She said, well, I couldn't possibly do that. The wind's taking them away. And he said, yeah, neither can you go and pick up the rumors that you spread all over. The, the damage is done. We need to be so careful about what we say because once it's out there, there, there's no taking it back. And look at Paul. They're in the process of killing him. Because the rumors, it, it's all false. None of it was true. But the rumor had spread and, and of course the people didn't care. But you know what God sees? God sees. And at the end of the day, Paul can have a clear conscience because he can say, Lord, you know that none of this so, Christians will be wrongly accused. Number two, Christians will be persecuted. It's just a matter of degree and a matter of extent. In 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul said to his young protege, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not may be persecuted will be persecuted again. It's just a matter of extent. And here's the Apostle Paul uh, being persecuted violently so. Um, they are killing him. And again, this is not an exaggeration. And while they were in the process of killing him, word reaches the cohorts um, that Jerusalem was in all confusion. In other words, there's this 
all this confusion and chaos. And in the northwest corner of the temple, there was the fortress of Antonia. And that's where, uh, basically, to put it simply, a part of the Roman army was with this tribune and centurions. And they, they were there. And somehow somebody ran up and they heard about what was taking place. And very quickly, the tribune gathers together his armies, probably hundreds of military men, uh, running down into the temple to discover what's taking place so that they can bring peace and order into the city. And verse 32 says, He at once took soldiers and centurions, ran down to them, and when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So again, they were in the process of beating Paul. And if they had not stopped, Paul would have been dead. They would have killed him. Now, let me ask, ask you this question. How do we account, or excuse me, how do we account for this insane hostility towards Paul? How do we account for this? They, they don't check to see whether or not the rumors are true. Uh, they hate Paul. They're hostile towards Paul. How, how can this be? Let me give you a couple answers. One answer comes from John 15, verse 18. John 15, verse 18. And this is what Jesus said to His disciples. The world hates you. Know that it hated Me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world... But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So Jesus says, you know what? The world hated me first, and now the world's going to hate you because you don't belong to the world. It's that simple. You're not on their team. So they hate you. First John, turning ahead to the epistles of John. about we read in 1 John 3.12. John says, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. That's something. Think about that. Cain killed Abel. And why did Cain kill Abel? Because Cain was wicked and his brother was righteous. That's why. So if you were to see Cain on his way to kill his brother and, and probably stabbed him out in the field where no one can see except God. God was there. If you were to ask Cain on the way, why are you so mad at your brother? Why are you so livid? Why, why this hostility? What did Abel do? And if Cain was to give you an honest answer, his answer would be, I can't stand him. I hate him. I despise him. Because he's righteous. Because he loves God. It's insane, isn't it? It doesn't make any sense. But I'd mentioned this before, but I'd say it again. We we have to understand this. It, It doesn't make sense. It's just because we're not a part of the world. 
just because we're not a part of the world. So they hate us. They despise us. Now, why is this happening to Paul? Let's ask that question. We know that they hate him, but, but why is this happening to Paul? Why is God um, allowing this to happen to Paul? Is God bad at Paul? Is Paul punishing him because of sin that he committed before he was a Christian because he persecuted the church? And, and, and God is saying, well, not, now you need to pay the consequences. Is, is that why? This is happening to Paul because God is pleased with Paul. This is not the curse of God. This is the blessing of God. In Matthew 5.10, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Paul is blessed. Verse 11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You've you, you got to get your arms around this. This is happening to Paul because God is pleased with him. This is God's will. And he will be rewarded for this. So the first point was Christians will be accused falsely. It's going to happen. Christians will be persecuted. Again, it's just a matter of degree or extent. Point number three is Christians may or may not be rescued by God. Christians may or may not be rescued by God. This is what we read back in Acts, verse 33. When the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains, he inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. So he's trying to find out what happened. Some are shouting one thing. Some are shouting another thing. Does that remind you of anybody? Same thing happened with Jesus. Their testimonies couldn't agree. Some were shouting one thing. Some were shouting another. John MacArthur a while back told the story that when he was a pastor early on in his ministry, he said basically there was this conspiracy against him. And he said it was a number on the elders board and, and he said he was willing to meet with them and do whatever it took to t- try and, and work through it. And they, they set aside time and they gathered together and he said, now I want you to talk. I'll go away. You can talk freely. I'm going to go away and when I come back, let's see if we can work through this. So he went away for a number of hours. He came back and he said, now where are we at? And one person said, I think you're way too involved in the ministry. You are just way too hands-on. And someone else said, I disagree. You're not involved enough. And he just kind of threw up his hands and he said, we're, we're right back to where we started. You know, sometimes it's just going to be, you know, you got this side and you got that side. And you know what? Sometimes you're, you're just not going to get it worked out. Sometimes people don't want to get it worked out. But they're, they're shouting what's going on. It doesn't make any sense. 
Verse 35 says, And when he came to the steps, talking about Paul, he was actually carried by the soldiers. Perhaps they, they had him up in the air. Carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! Does that sound familiar? You know what? In Greek, there's only one letter difference between away with him and away with the man, which is the same thing they cried out for Jesus. Away with him, give us Barabbas. And now they're crying out to the Apostle Paul, away with him. And basically what they're saying is, have him killed, rid the earth of him. We don't want to have anything to do with him. They wanted the Romans to do their dirty work. And they did take Paul away. They arrested him. They took him back to the barracks. And they saved his life. And here's an interesting irony. Uh, the Romans saved Paul while the Jews were seeking to kill him. And a little later, we'll see in his defense that the Romans will declare that Paul is innocent just like Pontius Pilate declared that Jesus was innocent. The Jews are bringing false charges and the Romans trying this trial say, he's innocent, I find no fault in him. But Paul will be set free unlike Jesus and he will be able to continue on. This is what we read in Acts 23.11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Now, I think that's a fascinating verse. And it says a number of things. First of all, it says, Paul, I've seen everything that's taken place. I saw you stand up and testify about me among the Jews in Jerusalem. And it also says you're going to be delivered and you're going to make it to Rome, which will be very significant when there's a shipwreck. He knows he's going to make it to Rome. Um, He has to. He has to testify about Christ. So he knows he's going to make it there. But the Lord has seen everything that's taken place. Isn't that comforting? Imagine if you just testified to Christ about about Him and the Gospel and and someone was angry with you and then the Lord appears to you. You know, as you've testified about me to the neighbor to the right of you, you're going to testify about me to the neighbor to the left of you. (laughs) I've seen it. And I think there's great comfort in that. Now, in closing, I I just want to stress uh, one, one other point in this. In Matthew 6, Jesus said, whatever you do, giving to the needy, Uh, praying, um, fasting, testifying about Christ, being persecuted, being falsely accused. God sees. And there's one other thing that we really have to cling to. God will reward you. And Jesus said that three times. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, I can still remember when I was in Trinity, I was in a systematic theology class, and there was some debate about whether or not, as Christians, we should do good things for God 
so that we will be rewarded? That was the question. And, and some in the, in the class were saying, we shouldn't do things for the reward. We should do the right thing because it's the right thing to do, not because we're going to be rewarded. And I still hear this among Christians. We need to just do the right thing. So here's the question I have for you. Is it okay to do things for the purpose of being rewarded? Is it it okay to pray and then say, now, Father, reward me. Is it okay to give money to the poor or benevolent and say, okay, Lord, now reward me? Is it okay to fast and say, okay, now, Lord, reward Is that okay? Is that okay? I, want, I, want, I was going to ask you. How many think that's okay? <laughs> I'm going to take a step further. Not only is it okay, it's necessary if you're going to please God. It's necessary. It's not just a question of whether or not it's okay or whether it's right. I'm going to say it is necessary to come before God and say, now God reward me. Hebrews 11.6 And without faith, It is impossible to please Him, to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. You want to please God. The only way to do that is with faith. And what does faith look like according to this verse? Well, you draw near God, you believe that He exists, Okay, that's just the beginning. But you also have to believe that He rewards those who seek Him. So when you come before God and then you say, reward me, God doesn't go, wow, look at the Christian down there. So greedy. All worried about the rewards. You know what God says? I love it. Look at the faith. Look at the faith. Look at that man of God. Look at that woman of God coming before me Believing my promises, believing that I will reward them. What faith? I am so pleased. And God probably turns to the angels. I'm so pleased by that. That pleases God. And that's how we endure trials. We know that God sees. We know that God is pleased. And we know that God will reward us. That's not wrong. That's how you live the Christian life. Hebrews 12, for the joy set before Him, the joy set before Him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame. How do you do that? And sat down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. You know how Jesus joyfully endured the cross? He looked ahead to His reward. He said, this is going to be tough, but that's okay. God's going to reward me. You know what He's going to do? He's going to exalt me. I'm going to sit down at His right hand and I'm going to rule and reign over the nations. That's how Jesus endured the cross because of the reward that was set before Him. And that's how we endure what we go through. We know that God sees. He's an omnipresent God. And He will reward us. And when we really believe that, then we can say, this is great. 
You know what happens every time you beat me? Another reward. You know what happens every time you mock me for my belief? Another reward. Keep at it. Keep at it. I can picture the Apostle Paul. He's beaten. He's like, he can look ahead to heaven. He's like, man, every time I'm beaten, it's just like that pile of reward. It's, just, it's getting higher and higher and higher. How do, you, how do you live that kind of life? By faith in a God who sees and rewards. Let's close and pray. Father, we say it so often that it has become a cliche, but I hope it's a reality that we really perform, if I can use that word, for an audience of one. We perform for You. Father, may we pray, preach, give, minister, witness. May we do all that we do for an audience of one. May we do it for the God who's sees everything in secret and the God who reward us. Father, help us to believe these promises so that we can live as you're calling us to live. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.